You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. It is very good to have the youth group back from their ministry this past week in uh, Savannah, Georgia. They're all up front in the spit zone, I would say, if I you know, move out a little bit. So good to have you guys back. Thank you for your service this week. We prayed for you guys a lot this past week and grateful for how the Lord used you. There are some things in life that you should not do halfway. For instance, you shouldn't play football halfway. <coughs> If, you're, if you've got the ball and you're running and somebody's coming at you full speed, the tendency is to sort of protect yourself, but it's going to be a lot worse if you don't go into it than if you go halfway. You just can't play football halfway. It's the same thing with a diet, right? You can't do it halfway. You've got, it's like for a month, you have no life at all. You just, you have to give up all the good stuff. Anything good for don't you? It's gonna. It's one of the great things about heaven. Thinking about heaven, isn't it? I mean, we can eat anything we want. It's it'll be what we want to eat. <clears throat> I'm assuming we'll all be looking good in our you know glorified bodies. I'm hoping so. <coughs> um, but you can't do. You you can't use half measures with a diet. And, and shopping. Look, if you're going to shop on Black Friday, keep moving or get trampled. It's, you just have to. You can't do it halfway. For many years in our land, the Christian life has been presented as something far less than an all or nothing proposition. It's kind of a designer religion, a designer Christianity where it's suited for my particular taste and purposes. And it's something that look good, looks good on me. And if it starts to look bad, I'll have to go in and change the garments a little bit and refashion it. I have to make it acceptable to others' taste as well as my own desire to look good. Jesus did not present anything like the partial measures that pass for discipleship today. See, the problem with that other kind of approach to Christianity is it's not Christianity at all. Jesus said, if you will be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. When approaching Christianity, the question that, that must be asked is, who was Jesus or who is Jesus? Was he a good man, a great teacher, a fraud, a heretic, lunatic, or was, as he claimed to be, God in the flesh? Was he the Messiah or a deluded man with a Messiah complex? Our text directly addresses the question, who is Jesus? But we're going to see... Interestingly enough, that both Orthodox believers and heretics appeal to the same text to buttress their arguments about who Jesus was, who Jesus is. There is considerably more 
than enough truth in Colossians 1, 15 to 20 to conclude in the firmest fashion that Jesus is eternal God, come as a human to die for our sins and, and resurrected to his rightful place as ruler over the entire universe. If you read this text in view of all scripture, you can hardly conclude otherwise. Even if you read the whole of this text and not just pick out a phrase here or there, you cannot conclude Otherwise, well, let me clarify that. You cannot conclude otherwise if you believe God's word to be true. It's an all or nothing proposition. In addition to understanding the truth of our text, I, I, I want to posit also that a fully developed biblical Christocentric worldview is the best way to be prepared to give a defense always for those who ask about the hope that you have in Christ. Think of it this way. The best way to be prepared to share Christ is to know, to share Jesus is to know him, know Jesus intimately. Today's text goes a long way in answering the question, who is Jesus? So we will hear the word of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit through the instrument of the Apostle Paul, writing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. That's our primary text, but we'll back up and take in verses 13 and 14 for context. It was the end of that prayer that we talked about last week. So if you would, please stand, as is our custom, for the reading of God's word <coughs> to our hearts. He... God the Father, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, we are thankful for the peace that is possible through the blood of, uh, of the cross. We, we think so frequently in our I, I care about what's right in front of me kind of world about peace in our hearts when things go badly. Lord, this peace that you're talking about is, is not only necessary, it is breathtakingly wonderful and scary at the same time that we might have been without peace between our sinful selves and a holy and righteous and yet very loving God. Thank you for bestowing Restoring peace between yourself and humanity through the blood of Jesus' cross. And may he be exalted in our thoughts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you, BC. Well, last week we encountered Paul's spiritually minded prayer for his friends that he had never met, friends that he had never met at Colossae. Um, <coughs> chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Get this beautiful prayer after the first eight verses, the introduction. He, he, he talks about prayer over and over. I've been praying for you. And then he, in verse 9, he says, this is what I've been praying. He ends up in uh, verse 13 telling us that believers are transformed. We, we're transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved Son, It's the classic already not yet nature of the Christian life that is repeatedly announced in the New Testament. We belong to the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God, it has come. It's broken into our world, and yet it's not fully here. We will one day see it in all of its fullness. And the reason we can do it is that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins in him. So... What does the kingdom represent? It represents everything. Everything about salvation for the Christian. It represents this life, the next, everything. Redemption uh, was understood in the Greco-Roman world within the context of slavery bought, uh, 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 of slaves being bought out of slavery. I wanted to just think about these few words that we've, we've got here on the screen today from these two verses. Most often, a slave was purchased, his freedom was purchased by someone else. He couldn't pay for it himself. Some slaves were able to save enough money and purchase their freedom. But as often as not, someone purchased the freedom for a slave or one who owned, bestowed freedom on that person. And that's how we think about redemption. Look, for the first 1,000 years of the church... Christians understood the, the work of the cross to be God buying our souls back from Satan. There is some of that that's in scripture. There's a part of the atonement uh, work of Jesus Christ that is in a sense redeeming us or purchasing us. But God didn't need to buy us from Satan. He did pay a price though that we would be bought out of our slavery. Um, forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament and the New Testament was related to sacrifice and cleansing. I, I love to hear, uh, well, it it's really makes me a little bit queasy, but <laughs> when I hear Burt Wallace talk about what it must have been like when Solomon dedicated the temple and, and, and the bulls and goats were sacrificed beyond number, the smell of the blood in that in that place the need for sacrifice the need for the blood of a living thing an animal indicates the seriousness of our sin and the necessity of blood being spilled for our redemption <coughs> in the old testament the shedding of the blood of animals brought temporary cleansing from sin in the new testament we will see in our text, Jesus' blood brought full and final peace between this righteous God and sinful men and women. <laughs> Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is, is such a delight to the believer's soul. 
Many scholars think this was an early Christian hymn that Paul employed as part of his strategy to bolster the fate of this young church that was under pressure with heretical teachings. Uh, did the false teaching that these guys were facing, known as what people call the Colossian heresy, was this Colossian heresy, is it something that sprouted from within the church or did it come from outside the church? I, I spent more than a little time this week talking first with Scott Colbreth and then with David Calvert, both of whom will be preaching from Colossians 2 in a few weeks, uh, about the nature of the Colossian heresy. Did it come from within or without? More than likely it came from outside the church, but I'm going to leave it to Ricky and David and Scott to wrestle with the details uh, when they get to chapter 2 in July. I, I mention it now because the Christ hymn seems to address some of the elements of this heresy. If this was an early church hymn, and probably it was, at least it's some, some of it was, it, there's little doubt that Paul either added to it or pointed it in the direction to make the points he wanted to make about Jesus and, and, and to state unequivocally the supremacy of Christ over all creation. It is language that is very familiar to those who know the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Proverbs, all over. This language shows up from everywhere in the Old Testament. It's language that is affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament as well. As we work our way through this majestic text, and you're almost certainly going to remember the first four verses of the, of the book of, of Hebrews. And you may hear overtones from the prologue in the first few verses of John's gospel. And if you're a serious student of the word, you may know about 1 Corinthians 8, 6, although you wouldn't necessarily be able to pull it up and say, oh yeah, that's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all thing, are all things and through whom we exist. Exist different authors, the same message. What is the message? Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Do you remember Hebrews 1.3? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you can see how those who want to misapply the scripture can do so. He is the image of the invisible God. He's like the invisible God. Wouldn't it prove to say that Jesus was created or wouldn't it prove that Jesus was created to say that he is the firstborn of all creation? No, it would not. In fact, in verse 16, we're going to see that Jesus was created. It would be a direct, was not created. It would be a direct and unmistakable contradiction for him to say one in one verse he was created and then to say he created all things in the very next Breath. In John chapter 1, we're told that all things that were created 
were created by him. And that would include himself. Nothing was created that Jesus did not create. Scripture is always consistent, even though we may have to do a little bit of digging to fully understand how it works together. And, and whatever you do, be careful about lifting one verse out of this place or that place and saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. When you don't understand its fuller context, typically in that passage that you're in and then in the whole of the Bible. When Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is saying, as does the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus has the same nature as God. And if he has the same nature of God as God, he must be God. It's not a question. Not he must be as in, well, he probably is. He must be. If he has the same nature of God, he is God. Furthermore, since Jesus has the same nature as the Father, then the invisible God has become visible in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, as we have seen, tells us that there is one God, both the Father and Son. Both are one God. Got it? Yes, by faith. The more you know about this God who is one nature, three persons, the more understanding you will have, though you'll never be able to articulate it in such a way that will be compelling to an unbeliever. Remember the order that God requires. It's not show me God that you exist and I will believe you. But God says, believe me and you'll see. Believe me and you will understand. So what about Jesus as firstborn? How can you understand this as anything other than God created Jesus? Well, you can see how Arius in the 4th century, unbelieving Arius, would say there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he didn't exist and then God created him. Arius was trying to protect Christianity from the charge of being a polytheistic religion. He was saying, look, we can't have people thinking that we worship three gods. But the belief that Jesus was created by the Father has been one of, if not the most damaging heresies in the history of the church. <clears throat> we fight it all the time today with Mormons, with Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses, with many others who talk about Jesus being a great man and he was even bestowed divinity. But that's, think about it. How, how, do you, how, do you, how can you bestow divinity? You're divine or you're not? In the first century, the firstborn had all the privileges of the inheritance in the fam of inheritance in the family. He had all the authority in the kingdom, and he enjoyed God's favor, God's affections upon himself. Israel was called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4:22. And the king of Israel was called God's firstborn in the highest of the kings of, of the earth in, in Psalm 89, verse 27. It was not only their position of authority that gave them such status, but it was also God's affection upon them that separated them from the rest. The Greek word that is used for uh, firstborn here, prodokakos, uh, 
sorry, prototakos was rarely used outside of biblical writings. It's impossible to take verse 15 apart from Jesus possessing the place of authority over all creation. How can you say that? That Jesus is, is when, you, when it says that Jesus is the firstborn, that just means that he is supreme over all creation? Well, the immediate context. In verse 16, we find that Jesus is not only the creator of all things, but that all things were made by, through, and for him. He was not created in order to hold this position. God didn't say, I'm going to create a son so that he can be over all that I, I will do. He rather created, Jesus created all things and all, all beings that he might exercise royal authority over them and that he might extend his amazing love, infinite love to his people. To those who will repent of their sins and believe on him, acknowledging his supremacy over all creation. In addition to Jesus' reign over the church, he rules over all beings, natural and supernatural, visible and invisible. One possible element of the Colossian heresy is that angelic beings were seen as mediators between God and mankind. And, and, and possibly there were four ranks of them, dominions, uh, rulers, uh, thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities. These were four ranks of angelic beings that were being identified here. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is over all. So it was God, these supernatural beings, us. And Paul said, nope, he's over all of that. You don't need any of that. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He didn't say it in those words here. He did in Timothy uh, later. So our text tells us that all creation is subject to Jesus, the Messiah. If there's any doubt about Jesus' divinity, verse 17 puts it to rest. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus existed before all things. In other words, he, like the Father, is eternal. The same thing that John told us about the creation. Furthermore, in Colossians 1.17, he is the reason that the universe stays intact. The first part of verse 18 is closing out the first of two stanzas in this poem or this hymn. He is the head of the body, the church. I've recently read through the book of Acts and or at least a portion of it. And it's amazing how, once again, the Holy Spirit through the through Luke, the author of the book of Acts, presents the work of the church as Jesus' continuing work in this world. So Jesus did what he did in the Gospels. We read about all of that. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He, he, he ascended back to heaven. And now his work continues through you and me. <clears throat> God's kingdom on this earth is accomplished in our witness to the world. It's the breaking into the darkness by Jesus through us. The designation here as the head 
of the body is a glimpse of what Paul will say repeatedly in Colossians. Not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. And it's that union that makes everything work in this Christian life. Do you have any idea what I've said to this point? I don't even know that I understand what I've said to this point. It just feels like one of those really heavy texts. Well, the second part of this hymn begins in the second part of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus' resurrection broke the power of Satan who held us in bondage because of our sin. Furthermore, Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our own resurrection. He was the first to be raised. He's the firstborn from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is the advent of the new creation, the beginning of all things being restored to the perfect state in which the world was created. Jesus' death and resurrection defeated sin and the forces of evil bent on destroying us and it made possible the new creation. No wonder in everything he is preeminent. Verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God refers to God's word, his wisdom. There are overtones of Proverbs 8 in our text. His glory, his spirit, his power, his holiness, and his love, all dwelling in Jesus. Consider when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be very happy. And Jesus said, Philip, we've been together all this time. You don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And then consider this. The fullness of Christ dwells in us. How is that possible? It's possible through the blood of his cross. The prior state of hostility between the creator and the creation due to sin has been removed and peace with God has been restored. And it is only through the blood of, of the cross that men and women will be made right with God. Why was the cross necessary? Why this violent, horrible, horrific death? In the words of Carl Truman, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. It's a mess. Our sin is far greater than we ever realized, but so is the mercy and the love of God. His response was in the cross. As you might imagine, we have only scratched the surface of this magnificent truth about Jesus. And, I, and again, I, I know this is heavy. 
sailing for some of you. It's tough sledding. Uh, beyond the theological treasures that are waiting, though, to be mined in this text, and we could spend a long time here, the implications for our individual lives, our life as a church, and for our witness are staggering as we grow deeper in our understanding of who Jesus is. And, and look, I've said this before, but I know a lot of people go to church and, and they say, look, Tell me how this is going to help me at my job this week. I don't have time for all the theology. I just want to know the practical. How am I going to get along in work this week? Tell me that. Give me some how-tos. I would gently suggest that you consider what such a question might indicate about understanding why God Gave his word to us. Why did God give his word to us? When Jesus encountered the discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, he didn't offer comfort and encouragement. Our, our men's group is going through Michael Horton's book, Core Christianity, and we, we talked about this yesterday morning. Think about Jesus encountering those discouraged disciples. He said, Why are you so sad? He said, They said, Well, we thought this guy was the Messiah. But they resurrected and some people have, I mean, they killed him and some people have said he, they've seen him alive. We don't know. We just, it just it seems like it's just a great big fail on, on his part. We thought he was the Messiah, he wasn't. And Jesus, instead of saying, guys, let me, just, let me just give you some words of encouragement, he rebuked them. He said, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. You don't get it, do you? And then he went to the Old Testament and all the way through, he just showed how it pointed to his sufferings and his resurrection. And then just before he left, just before he disappeared, he was revealed to them and their response wasn't, man, that's awesome, we got to see him. He said, did not our hearts burn within us when he shared the word? It was the word of God that encouraged their hearts as they looked to Jesus. And then, of course, they saw him, and that was a pretty cool thing, regardless of what they said or didn't say. As you share the gospel with others, your best efforts will come from a fully developed biblical Christocentric worldview. The more you know about who Jesus is, and the more you understand God's purposes in the world, even though it looks like it's just gone to pieces now, the more effective your witness will be. So I want us to think briefly about three ways that such a worldview opens others' hearts and minds to the gospel. First, when we understand Jesus for who he is, it challenges men and women to understand their place in relation to God. Most people in our land would say, hey, you want to talk about God? Let's talk about God. What can this God do for me? How is my life going to improve if I make him a part of my life? That is, of course, the wrong question. And deep down, most people know it is the wrong question. When others see the supremacy of Christ 
being lived out in our lives. That doesn't mean we're perfect, we're far from it. But when they see that we have made Christ supreme in our lives, they're challenged to consider their own standing before the God of the universe. Now look, granted, there's a chance that they'll be, they'll be irritated when they are provoked to consider that maybe they're not the center of the universe. That maybe there's something bigger than themselves, their own lives, or even their cause, as good as it may be. They may be irritated to say, you got to give your entire life to Jesus. But, it, but is there anything more important than such a contemplation? It's never a bad thing to be confronted with your own mortality. Some of you just recently have been confronted with your own mortality. They've said cancer. You've wrestled with problems that you've had for a long time. And you know sooner or later it's going to get you. We're all, we're, none of us are getting out alive. And we all know it. We just miss an accident or somebody we know is killed. It's never a bad thing to be confronted with your own mortality. And for those who don't know Jesus, your confidence in the Son of God is a challenge for them to consider eternity. When they say, when they say, you really believe this stuff, don't you? It's a challenge. It is your privilege to help people understand that we are not able to make God a part of our story. It's not like I, I, I want him to be a part of my story. No, it's his story. We're just a little teeny part. But see, here's the thing. When we elevate Jesus, when we make God, when we make our lives all about God, he's all about us. Jesus came to die. And so our teeny little part is magnified as if it is the most important thing going. But it doesn't happen if you make yourself the most important thing, part of your story, your character in your story. God has to be. Jesus has to be. Also, give me those five things. Look, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things hold together. He is supreme over all beings, visible, invisible. And in him, the fullness of God dwells. The second benefit of a fully developed biblical Christocentric worldview. Get that? Fully developed biblical Christocentric worldview is that it promises the only legitimate hope for wrongs being righted. Carla Diaz sent me a cartoon a few years ago, and Neil and I use it in the church history class. Welcome home, by the way. I started wearing my Hawaiian shirt to welcome the Mannings back, but uh, I'll do that another time, maybe next Sunday, just before we fly to Australia. So this may be the last two sermons you'll ever hear from me. I can that, that flight is quite, uh, it's brutal. And we're going to the outback, by the way. Walking around in the outback at night in the dark. Can you believe that? <laughs> Testing. 
You shouldn't tempt the Lord your God to what I say, but hey. <laughs> uh, apparently, it's going to happen. Carla sent me this cartoon a few years ago that said, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Those who do know history are doomed to stand by and watch those who do not know history repeat its mistakes. <laughs> I think probably many of us feel like we're that person right now. The lack of uh, historical perspective in our land is disturbing and almost alarming. Um, and we are trying desperately hard to right the wrongs that have existed for centuries. And it feels to many that things are worse than they have ever been before and drastic action must be taken to right the wrongs that prevail. Just in case you're one of those who don't know history, things are nowhere near as bad as they've ever been. Nowhere near it. But we may well be heading in that direction, like Paul Johnson says. Confusion in our land, and confusion, by the way, comes when, we don't, when we're not anchored to anything bigger than ourselves. Confusion always degenerates into chaos, chaos to anarchy, and out of anarchy, order will come. I miss one in there, but you get the point. Relativism degenerates into confusion. People can't stand for there not to be in right, right and wrong. And we've spent many years in our land saying the Bible that just, uh, it's really not as important as some of the people used to think it was. And so now uh, anything goes, well, you can't live like that for, but for so long. And people are saying, no, there is a right and wrong, and you're wrong, and I'm right, and this is the way it's got to be. And we're in trouble. Do we have a responsibility to pursue justice in this world? Absolutely we do. Jesus broke into the darkness of this world. And as we participate in justice, we break into the darkness of this world, condemning and doing what we can about injustice where we find it. But we recognize that the death and resurrection of Christ were only the beginning of the restoration of the world to its original state of perfection. It will not be complete until Jesus returns. Your confidence, your understanding of the way life is and the inequities and the imbalances and how one day all will be made right. And that is not in any way to justify anybody. But your understanding that, 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 that this whole thing is going to end up where God wants it to be, but our trust must be in Him. When your trust is only in Christ and in the restoration of all things, it may be unnerving, but it will be hopeful for those who are presently without hope. Can I make a suggestion about engaging people with these kind of thoughts? Do it individually, not in a group. You're not going to win in a group. Do it individually, but deep down people know. 
The things that are wrong will never be made right until Jesus returns. It is really scary to think that things will be made right before Jesus returns. Because then people become God. They take matters into their own hands. We've done it forever. And both sides, it doesn't matter. What if, no matter what you think. We all think we're doing the work of God. Or, even worse, I am of God because I determine what's right and wrong. Well, the last benefit of a fully developed biblical Christocentric worldview is that it provides a cogent and cohesive explanation for the mystery of life. Do you have all the answers for all the questions that unbelievers have? <laughs> of course not. There are a lot of times that when people say, well, what about this? You have to say, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But if you have a thorough understanding of the Trinity, of Jesus' incarnation and substitutionary death and, and, and resurrection, and all that means, then you understand the way that this life and the next works. You see what I'm saying? And in a sense, you do have an answer for everything, even when you have to say, I'm not exactly sure how it all works, but this I know. This I believe. In this, I am confident. When you have opportunity to engage an unbeliever with your worldview, the appeal is likely to be significant. When you combine a gospel worldview with what we have learned this past year about the palpable presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not going to make a difference on how it sounds, but it'll bother me. The Holy Spirit in our lives is, is, is evident to those to whom we are witnessing. And, and when we understand how the gospel comes in bits and pieces and how the implications of the gospel are broad enough that you can jump in almost anywhere. You don't have to start with creation. You don't have to start with Romans 3.23. You can jump in anywhere with the gospel if you understand it well enough. Then when you share Christ, you're likely to hear, I never thought about it that way before. The more you understand the big story of Scripture... All the way from creation to the end of days, the more natural your witness will be. And we'll close this morning with these words from Michael Horton. The good news is not an agenda for us to fulfill, but an announcement of God's victory in his son. You understand that? The good news is not an agenda for us to fulfill, but an announcement of God's victory in the Son. Even today, as the word is proclaimed, people are still being cut to the heart as they were at Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel. The Spirit is still opening hearts. Christ is still welcoming foreigners, sinners, and outcasts to his baptismal bath. And royal meal. That's a good word. Let's pray.
Father, um, I think most of us acknowledge that we're guilty of being the center of our own universe. <laughs> and Lord, we don't have, we, we really don't own a universe. And so um, we've got no right to take that place. Of supreme authority. An arbitrator. And judge. But Lord we have. A savior who is perfect. Who loves us with a love that is. Pure. Honest. True. Give us, Lord, that heart that exalts Jesus. And then, Lord, that is willing at any point to share that good news with those who don't. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for giving us the privilege of being a part of the kingdom that breaks into the darkness. Jesus, we exalt and glorify you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.